Good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Chuck Colson. Um, if that means anything to some of you, um, I'm of no relation. I was born the time he was going to prison. My parents thought nothing would come of the name. He converted, messed up my life permanently. <laughs> and so it's been a trial, and I've suffered much on account of the name, but we, um, I'm still making it. So uh, I am the rector of the Church of the Ascension in Arlington, Virginia. It's really good to be with you this morning. It's an exciting day for our church because it's our third birthday today. And, uh, and when you've done this for a little while, you, you realize how tenuous all church planning is. And uh, it makes me feel at home when you see the cross rush forward or something's been forgotten or the screen doesn't work or, you know, any number of other disasters take place. We forgot to put water in the baptismal one time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a dry baptism. Um, but uh, it's great to be here. And I've met Johnny several years ago. And so I heard about the vision for this. And so it's fun to see it come to f- fulfillment and fruition. Um, if you have a Bible uh, with you, you can open up to Psalm 32. Um, when asked to come and preach, it's, it's always a bit uh, challenging to figure out what to say if you're not fitting into a current uh, sermon series. And so this morning is not meant to be simplistic. It's meant to be central. We're focusing on the very heart of the Christian gospel, things that many of you know, things that some of you have known for a long time, and things that may be new to some of you. But our goal and desire uh, this morning is just to drive into the very heart of what it means to live the good life before God. And so if you have Psalm 32 available, please turn there. And then uh, let us open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would be with us this morning as we come to your word. May your spirit speak to us. May you take these truths and drive them into our hearts that we know, love, and serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in his highly acclaimed book, The Secular Age, Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian philosopher, he contends that every society possesses a vision of the good life. In other words, at the heart of every culture is this notion of what it means to flourish as a human being. It's embedded in our beliefs, in our values, in our habits. And if you dissect those, you will pick up what a particular group of people believes the good life is. Now, the church, as a society, has a particular culture, and we, too, possess a vision of the good life, of what it means to flourish as a human being. Now, one very interesting angle to take on this notion of the good life in order to understand what the Bible says about it is to look at the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a collection of poetry from ancient Israel inspired by by God. And throughout it, you find Beatitudes. Beatitudes are just those statements, blessed is the one who. There's multiple Beatitudes. In fact, they run throughout the 150 uh, chapters of Psalms. But it's a statement of blessing, which gives us a vision of what it means to flourish in God's presence, what it means to live the good life. Psalm 32 is particular amongst all those Beatitudes. And you might have noticed why in verses 1 and 2. It's unique because it's a double Beatitude. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's unique because it's double. And whenever the Bible does something like that, it's not simply to be repetitious. But as with all good poetry, it's trying to drive home a point. That there's something unique here that we must grab. And so John Calvin, in his commentary on the Psalms, he says this, that all that Scripture commends about blessedness in other Beatitudes depends upon the blessedness commended here. There's something unique. There's something preeminent about what's being said here. That the experience of the forgiveness of sins is the doorway that opens up all other blessing. And so, friends, if we want to know what it is to live the good life, according to the church, then we have to understand what's being said here. That this entire psalm is the gateway, the access point into what God truly wants for us. So allow me to ask you a few questions. Three, what do you do with your personal guilt? How do you handle shame? And when you're guilty of wrongdoing against God and against your neighbor, what do you do with that? How do you handle that moment? The way that each of us answers those three questions greatly determines our experience of this good life. Now, in Psalm 32, there are two responses that we can give in these moments when we experience guilt shame when our faults have been brought to our awareness and the first is this is that we can hide and we can retreat into silence look with me in verses three and four for when i kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer we see what the psalmist did in his own experience of his guilt is that at first he retreated into silence and his bones wasted away. And friends, so often that's what we're tempted to do when we're confronted with our sins, when we feel the weight of our personal guilt and shame is we simply want to act as if it's not there. When my wife, Melissa, and I first moved to Arlington, we bought a, 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 t- a terrible home. Uh, and, uh, but it was a house and it needed renovating. And, um, you know, when you do renovations, the contractor will tell you, well, plan X amount of money and then plan to double it because you're going to discover all kinds of things along the way. And I remember the day that was particularly terrible when they were taking out certain things and demoing and, and we kept getting calls from the contractor of, um, I, I need you to come back over. We need to talk about something. And uh, so I went back over, and we were staring at one, one particular wall. And he said, well, I found this, and this is probably what it means. But in order to know if that's true or not, I need to tear open this drywall. And he was telling me that it was probably rot and that there could be mold involved. And I knew that if he tore open the drywall, we would find out the truth. And it was fairly evident what the truth was. But the drywall looked nice. (laughs) It kept everything hidden. And uh, and I knew the thousands of dollars that were going to result from tearing down that drywall. 
And uh, so the next time, uh, so I, I did tell him, I said, well, go ahead and take out the drywall and I'll be back in a few hours. Next time I came back and the whole side of that part of the house was gone. <laughs> All rotten. <laughs> and it was like, wow, <laughs> who would have known? And oftentimes we intuit the same thing about ourselves. Guilt and shame are not there simply to make you feel bad. They're indications of something that's unhealthy beneath your drywall. But sometimes the drywall, we keep up the veneer, we keep up the appearance of things because it's simply more comfortable. And what the psalm says to us, what God is saying to us, is that we can hide. We can retreat into that kind of silence when we're confronted with our sins. But something happens to us. You do maybe keep up a veneer, a certain appearance. But also it begins to eat away at us. It sinks down into our bones, he says. It is internalized. It becomes a part of us, our sins do. And then they turn to destroy us. And our our strength is dried up like the heat of summer. Many of you are probably familiar. It may have been some time since you read Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Do you remember this one? A wonderful book. A story about a woman in, in Puritan New England who is caught in adultery. Her husband is away, and she turns up pregnant. There's not a lot of drywall that can cover this kind of thing, especially in Puritan New England. She's guilty. And so she's sentenced to wear a scarlet letter A for adulteress on her chest. She has to pin it on all her dresses. And so she's shamed and shunned in lots of ways by the community. The person with whom she's had the affair was never found out. We actually learn a little bit later that it was Reverend Dimsdale, perhaps the most eminent preacher in the community with whom she had had the affair. As the story unfolds, Hester Prynne grows in her shame. She is just an outcast of the community. Reverend Dimsdale grows in his popularity as a preacher. He becomes more fervent, more active, commending the grace of God to his fellow sinners. And at the same time, his health is declining. He's shriveling. And finally, at the end of the book, in front of the entire town, Dinsdale comes out, confesses his sins as he has withered to the point where he has no strength left. And what he says is the letter that she wears upon her breast is but a dim shadow of the one that's upon his heart for all these years. And he dies right there on the platform. And Nathaniel Hawthorne captures just what the psalm is saying, what happens to us. Is that we can try to cover up, we can retreat into silence, we can hide. But our sins do eat away at us, they destroy us. And friends, we find here the second response that's possible when we're confronted with our sins, when we feel the weight of our shame and our guilt also. And the second response is that we can confess, we can speak of our sins, and we can be hidden before God in Christ. This is the language that Paul uses in Colossians 3 of being hidden in Christ. Look with me in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
Now, you see three different words here for sin. In the original, they are three distinct words talking about one reality. We have transgression, we have iniquity, and we have sin. Those aren't three different classes of sin. But rather, it seems what David is doing in writing this psalm is he uses the full range of his vocabulary to talk about any and all kinds of sin. What you've done and what you've left undone. Great and small, conscious and unconscious. All kinds of sins. God is able to forgive. But the key to this forgiveness, to the experience of it, is the confession. It's not retreating into silence, but it's speaking it. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said. Just the opposite of hiding, of retreating into silence. And friends, that's what the grace of God frees us to do. It frees us to tear down the drywall, to have the courage to pull it back, no matter how humiliating, no matter how hard, because sometimes to pull down the, tri- the drywall is more troublesome. It's easier just to leave it up. It feels much better. But friends, the grace of God gives us the courage to rip it down, to look at the rot, to own it, to confess it, to tear down that side of your house, no matter what it costs, and to know that you're accepted by God in Christ, that you're hidden in Him, and that God's approval of you rests in that and in nothing else. So these are the two responses. And the bottom line, though, is that all of us struggle with the immensity of this proposal. That simply by confessing our sins, God would hide us in his son and accept us. Many of us might know that as a propositional truth, as a statement. But when it comes down to our experience of that, all of us struggle. That God really forgives all of our sins? That we can with courage and boldness confess them? And he will heal us. He'll renew us. And the psalmist captures something of this in verse 6 and 7. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And in the second half of verse 6, you see this. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. In the Middle East, in an arid climate, when it rains, it tends to pour. And when it pours, the ground oftentimes does not absorb the water. And so we have what we call wadis in the desert. And these are very dangerous places to be when it rains. Oftentimes, they're little very narrow canyons, box canyons. And can be uh, very dangerous if you're caught in one when it rains. And this seems to be what the psalmist is referring to, the rush of great waters. If you've ever seen this on television, you know the violence of this of this water and how quickly it rises. And for all of us, when we feel our guilt, when we experience shame, it can feel like a rush of great waters. And we wonder if there really is deliverance for us. Sure, God has said he will forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, that he can remove it all. But is that really true for me? For what I've done, for the things going on in my life, 
can that really happen? Or will the waters, will they overwhelm me? And in our experience, though we may not speak it out loud, it is how we desperately feel on the inside. But notice what it says, that in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That is, the waters shall not reach him. Now, John Newton, who you may be familiar uh, with, he was the author of the, the hymn Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader who converted to Christ and uh, then became a minister in the Church of England. And, and Newton was part of the great revival that took place in the church in the late uh, 18th century. Wonderful man. He took part in the revival not so much because he was a great preacher. It's amazing. It's not what you think of someone who was a key participant in the revival. But Newton was a, a writer. Uh, particularly, he was a letter writer. And so he had a vast correspondence that we still have available to us today. And he wrote with ministers inside the Church of England and outside. And one of those correspondences uh, that I read recently was with a man named William Howell of Yorkshire. And Howell was an eminent preacher in Yorkshire. He was famous for his eloquence, for his rhetoric. But he was also a man given to discouragement. And he wrote to Newton saying that God surely couldn't forgive him because of late he had fell into a despondency in response to a sickness. And he felt like he was under the judgment of God and God was not forgiving his sins. So Newton writes back. Listen carefully to this. It's wonderful. When we burden ourselves with our many sins, we are apt to overlook the very greatest of them, unbelief. For what can be a greater proof of stubbornness and pride than to dare to contradict the express word of God, to say that he will not pardon when he declares that he will, to persist in it, that he will make differences when he has assured us that he will make none. And friends, this whole notion that the great waters will overwhelm us, what Newton is saying is that when we fail to trust that God's grace can accomplish what he says it can do, that that's per perhaps the greatest sin of them all. Stubbornness and unbelief and pride. To say that God can't forgive. At times it appears to be more humble to say, well, my sins are so great that God could never forgive me. But Newton says, no, that's not humility at all. It's arrogance. To say that God can't do what he's promises to do through Jesus, that is to remove our sins. And so the confidence that we have to have when we experience our shame, our guilt, is to know that there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. That's the thing that we must trust. That God can overwhelm our sins, that they will not overwhelm us, that he has conquered them through Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Now, I grew up in eastern North Carolina, so that meant vacations were typically towards the, the coast. And I, for several summers, we went to the, the Bogue Sound, just in, in Moorhead City, North Carolina. And on one of these trips, my dad decided to learn how to sail. And th this was not like big-time sailing. I'm talking about a 10-foot sunfish, okay? If you, are you familiar with these little boats? There's not much to them, but they squirrely. My dad launches out on it, comes back, and picks up my mom. 
And we were all watching with great delight to see how this was to go as they pushed away on the sunfish. And, uh, and they had just been pushed kind of into uh, the deeper water. When the boat lurches, my dad rolls off the back. The boom swings around as the wind catches it, catches my mother, and the whole thing flips over. She's underneath the sail, and she's flapping around. She swims out. She looks at my father. And sorry, this is revealing of my family dynamics. <laughs> she looks at my dad and says, you're lucky that I can swim. I could have drowned underneath there. We're all howling on the beach as, as she just lights into my dad. And then he looks at her and he says, well, you know, all you had to do was stand up. My dad stands up and the water is up to his knee. <laughs> and guys, it's much the same case for us. We hide. We think we're in far greater jeopardy than we are when we face our sins. And all you have to do is stand up. All you have to do is trust the grace of God. It's there. It's steady. It's secure. It's, it's just underneath you. It's for you to stand on. It's for you to trust in. And in the middle of your uncertainties, in the middle of um, your own unbelief, ask him to help you to believe. And he'll meet you in this place. And one other typical problem that we struggle with, though, even when we become more certain that there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us, it is our own experience of confession. Oftentimes, our confession feels a bit shallow. It's something attached to the end of the prayers of the people. It's something that we may do a couple of times a week. Sometimes it's at the beginning of the service. It can be emotion that we go through. And the psalmist warns us at the end of verse 2. He says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And that last part of the line is troublesome to me because I go through the motions of confession fairly regularly. Sometimes it's deep and profound and sometimes it's not. It's more of a motion. And the line, in whose spirit there is no deceit. How do we know when our confession is real? How can, can we discern whether it's true repentance or whether it's filled with deceit, whether it's more empty? And so we look at the final verses of the psalm in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so do we, how do we know that our repentance is real, that there's not deceit hidden within it? And what the psalmist contends here and what God speaks to us is that the genuineness of our repentance is found actually on the other side of our confession. And there's two ways that it shows up. And the first is this in verse eight is that we listen to God's instruction. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. 
or it will not stay near you. But this is following the announcement of the forgiveness of sins. And then God instructs us. And so, friends, what it means is not that we live a perfect life, having confessed our sins to God, but it does mean that we become, uh, we are shaped by God, that we become teachable to Him, that there's a humility that looks to Him for guidance and instruction. We don't need a bit and a bridle to be led because we're not stubborn. Having given up arrogance, having given up unbelief, God becomes our teacher. Now, my oldest son, just if he's, he's eight now, but when he was in the one to two-year-old range, we were attempting to teach him to repent. That's a process. And we remember the first time he said, sorry. He had just slapped my wife. He's a sweet kid. It didn't quite make sense. It was a little bit out of character. He just popped her right across the face. And, um, and Melissa looked at him and said, Sim, can you please apologize to mommy? That's not the right thing to do. And so beautifully, he said, I'm sorry, mommy. And the, the hearts of the, and we were just melting. Did you hear that? You know, what wonderful Christian parents we are. He then winds up and slaps her right again, you know, right after it with great delight. <laughs> Wonderful Christian parents. <laughs> and friends, that's not repentance. <laughs> but just because it revealed some kind of lack of understanding, some hard-heartedness. And just to go through the motion to say that God forgives, to know that he does no, it's to yield a teachableness. It's not that we become perfect. It's not that you'll never do it again. But it's also not done in a high-handed way. It's desiring for God to guide us and lead us. And that's one of the first fruits of a genuine and real repentance. One of the first fruits. Now, the second is this in verse 11. Not only do we become humble and teachable, we listen to God's instruction. But we also rejoice in God's gift free gift of righteousness to us be glad in the lord and rejoice O righteous and shout for joy all you upright in heart friends when we experience the grace of the gospel that god has freely removed our sins as he shout as he surrounds us with the shouts of deliverance the announcement of our absolution that we've been forgiven of our sins it creates this teachableness but one other thing it creates is rejoicing. It creates song. It creates freedom. This is what forgiveness does. It moves us. And it moves us into worship. Why? Because God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's removed our sins. We would be, our strength would be completely sapped. The only place we could hide would be in our sins and putting the drywall veneer over them. But God has removed them. He's dealt with the rot. He's cursed His Son instead of us. And so we sing. We sing of Christ and what God has done for us. And so, friends, when you find a church and a community that knows little of singing... Much what Jesus says in Luke 7 is normally because they know little of forgiveness. Because this is the litmus test that the Psalms give us. That real repentance and the experience of being relieved of guilt, shame, and wrongdoing. Being at fault. It leads to song. 
rejoicing. Because this status, he says, rejoice, O you righteous. You're not righteous because of what you do. You're righteous because that's the status God gives you. God counts each of us to be in the right, to have right standing with him because of Jesus. It all depends upon him. And that's why the praise springs forth. And so, friends, this is the good life. This is the entryway. This is the gate. This double blessing of forgiveness. It opens up everything else that Scripture commends to us about blessedness. There's much else. But unless we pass through this gate, unless we know what it is to walk in this humility, we'll never know it. So rest in Him and know this good life. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the ways that we struggle with your grace. It is a, a marvelous thing that you surround us with shouts of deliverance, that you remove our iniquity and our sins and our transgressions, that you cancel them all out through the blood of your Son, and yet it's still hard for us. Our pride and unbelief is, is immense. And so, God, we ask that you help us, that you bring us comfort this morning in the midst of our sins, and that we know that you have delivered us. May we trust that. Would we just stand up? Would we trust in you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.